This morning we'll look at Psalm 73. This morning we're finishing up uh, a short series called Entering the Sanctuary. Two weeks ago we talked about the importance of entering the sanctuary, and last week um, we talked about how to make sense of life, and uh, this week we want to talk about why we worship the way we worship, and um, I want to explain the order of our service and, and why we have this order of service. And then for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the Reformation. In case you don't know, it's um, 500 years since Martin Luther took his uh, hammer and nail and nailed up his 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church door. And we're going to talk about the significance of that. And then following that series, um, we will look at the Gospel of Luke. So that's where we're, we're headed. So Psalm 73. This is God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant word. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slept. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increased in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I now ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me begin by asking you a very important question. What do you 
want? What do you want? Two weeks ago, we talked about that question, and I mentioned that if you open up the Gospel of John, you will see the prologue, you will see the introduction, and then we see John the Baptist beginning his ministry, and two times he points to Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After he says it a second time, two of John's disciples turn from John and they walk towards Jesus. And as they walk towards Jesus, Jesus turns and he looks at them and he says, What do you want? Or what are you seeking after? And I mention that James K.A. Smith comments by saying, Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? Nor does he ask, what do you believe? The question is, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. We are defined primarily not by what we think or even by what we believe, but by what we desire. And this introduces us to our problem. Often there is a gap between what we know intellectually, theologically with our minds and what we desire in our heart of hearts. Asaph understood the problem with that gap. We see it in the first three verses. He begins by saying, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's what he believed. That was the most basic of all doctrinal statements. God is a good God. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And we said that's a metaphor for almost turning away from God, turning away from the faith. And he tells us the reason. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Very simply, Asa said, I know in my mind, I know theologically, I know that the right answer doctrinally is that God is good. But you know what I desire in my heart? I desire all the things that could the wicked have. And there was this gap between what he knew and believed and what he desired in his heart. And then we jumped ahead a little bit in the psalm, and we looked at verse 25. And I said, verse 25 of this psalm may be the greatest description of what it means to honor and glorify God with your life. Notice what Asaph said. This is an incredible statement. This really is a great summary of the goal of the Christian life, to be able to say this with honesty and sincerity. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Isn't that great? So earlier, Asaph is saying, I know God's good, but I desire all the things that the wicked are enjoying. And then we jump ahead and he says, I desire God. That's my desire, God. And here's the big question. How did he get from this place to this place? And we saw that the answer to that was verse 17. In 16 he said, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
God's answer to the gap between what we know and the desire of our heart is very simply going to church each week. Go to church. Walk into the sanctuary and God will work on your heart. That is so important. Ordinary Christian worship is transformational. It really is just ordinary Weekly worship is powerful. And if you're a Christian, I think I can prove it to you. If you'll just be honest for a moment. If you're a Christian, I think you know what happens to your heart when you miss church on Sunday. What happens to your heart when you miss church two weeks in a row? Can you sense it? Can you feel it? Even if you're reading the Bible on your own and praying every single day, do you sense something happening within your heart because you didn't make it to the sanctuary and meet with God? I do. That in itself is proof positive that just going to the sanctuary, it really does make a difference. It really is powerful. That was two weeks ago. Now last week we asked this question, what happens when you go to the sanctuary? What happened to Asaph when he went into the sanctuary? And I had mentioned that Asaph heard a story. But not just any story, he heard the story. And I introduced you to a concept that you may have not have been familiar with. He heard the meta-narrative. Ooh, meta-narrative. What does that mean? Narrative is just a synonym for story. Meditative, that's Greek. It means beyond or all-encompassing. In other words... He heard the story of all stories. He heard God's story that helped him make sense of what was going on here on earth. And I gave you different ways to describe that meta narrative. The, the long definition was this God, through the person of Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, is defeating Satan sin and death and bringing to himself a people for his own glory and our good that's what god is doing through christ he's on a mission he's defeating satan sin death and he's creating for himself a people for his glory and our good and i said if that was too much let me give it to you in three words creation god created all things good fall but man rebelled against god sin entered into the world and then redemption that's what god is doing he's redeeming mankind and i think we need to understand redemption in a cosmic scope he is restoring redeeming all of creation and i said if three words was too much i'll give you two words paradise restored this would be a great bible study Paradise restored. Open up your Bible, look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, and then open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, and make a list of all the parallels. Garden, tree of life, waters, God dwelling with his people. Just go ahead and make a list. It's astounding. And what you'll see is that paradise restored really does summarize the Bible. So Asaph heard some kind of version of that meta-narrative and it, and it put things into perspective and there, and there was a change in his mindset. Now he had an eternal perspective. 
Now he realized, wait a second, I'm envious of people who are going to hell. What am I thinking? And after he enters the sanctuary, he says, they're the ones on slippery places. They're going to be judged. Wait a second. All of a sudden, he's got an eternal perspective. And he's got a heavenly perspective, which we often need. So, so often, we, we simply forget about God. We, just go th- we get caught up in our problems and our situations, and we forget about God. And sometimes we just need to lift up our eyes to the hills and see, there's where my help comes from, the Lord. Sometimes we just need to be reminded, God's here. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's still sovereign. He's still working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we just need to be reminded. We need to see things from God's vantage point. And then we also see this great transition in his perspective. Now he has a humanly perspective versus a beastly perspective. And and I mean this, and, and this is kind of fascinating. He said in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you he was saying what what was i thinking i I was like an animal wow what was going through my mind have you ever looked at someone and thought what are you thinking you have totally lost perspective you ever done that you've done that (laughs) we so easy to lose lose perspective he got his perspective back he had an eternal perspective a heavenly perspective and his sanity came back if you will. And it's because he heard the meta-narrative. It's, it's that simple. He just heard the big story that helped him to explain and make sense of what was going on in his life. M- many of you have, have heard this simple, this simple story. Man in the, in the Middle Ages was going to a rock quarry, and, and he saw men working on the rocks. And they all had their, their little hammers and chisels, and they were chiseling away at the rock. And he asked the first one, what are you doing? He's like, I'm doing a tedious job of chiseling away at this stone so that it'll be a perfect square rock. And then he went to the next gentleman who's got his rock in his hand. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm working hard to provide for my family. And then he went to the, the third stone cutter and he said, and what are you doing? He said, I'm building a beautiful cathedral for the glory of God. And I think at that moment, the other two workers might have said, Oh, yeah, you're right. That's what we're doing. I lost sight of the big picture. And that's what happens to us until we hear the meta narrative. Then we say, Oh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I forgot. That's why I'm doing all the work that I'm doing. There's a bigger picture than just sweating and providing for my family. This is part of advancing God's kingdom and God's glory. A simple story is powerful. Now, this week, we want to ask the question, what story are we trying to tell each week as we gather together in worship? And I don't think I've ever uh, done this, and shame on me, I should, should have done this earlier than today. Uh, but I want to explain to you just very practically this morning why we worship as we do. Why, why do we have the format of worship that we that we do. Did we just, you know, pluck some things together? No, there, there's a purpose for this. We're trying to tell the story. There's a reason for our order. And I want to go through the five steps of our worship this morning so that you can see the big story of what we're seeking to tell every week as we gather together for worship. And there's an outline in your bulletin. It's not the normal outline. We have it on one sheet. But if you just look at the bulletin, you'll see that the first step, and it's the call to worship, and it says, 
The Lord calls us into His presence. Right before the call to worship, the Lord calls us into His presence. And this begs the question, where is God? And if you've gone through the children's catechism, you know the answer. Where is God? God is everywhere. The big word is omnipresent, right? It's one of those omni words, right? Omnipresent. God is everywhere. But if we could be a little more precise, put a finer point on it, where is God's throne located? What's the answer to that question? It's not a true question. (laughs) It's in heaven. It's in heaven. And when God calls us into His presence, He is summoning us to come before His throne of grace. And I want you to have a very clear picture that this is what takes place when God calls us into His presence. Turn to Hebrews 4, if you will. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that many think uh, Hebrews was originally a sermon. And I think a good case can be made for that. If you read right through the whole book of Hebrews, uh, 13 chapters, you'll see that it does flow very nicely. And it indeed could be um, a sermon that was preached altogether on one occasion. Uh, Regardless, the flow is important. But I just want to point out a couple of passages. Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. Since we have a high priest, and that's talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus made a way for us to go to heaven. It's fascinating if you read through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus dies, and then the very next thing we're told is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and this was the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, indicating that we can now go right into the Holy of Holies, God's very throne room and that's where we go every single Sunday. Now turn ahead to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:18 For you have not come and I want you to notice the present tense it's very important. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So you have not come to Mount Sinai. So where have I come? Glad you asked. Verse 22. But you have come. Again, notice the present tense. The author of Hebrews is saying to the people of God, this is where you come, where you gather together for worship. For you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When we gather together 
for worship. God calls us into His presence, and if our eyes were open, we would see that He is leading us up into the heavens to come before His throne. And what would we see if He would open our spiritual eyes? We would see the heavenly Jerusalem and innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Then drop down to verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? On every Lord's Day, we go up to heaven and God speaks to us from heaven. But did you notice the congregation? It's beautiful. The angels are there all around. The souls of righteous men made perfect. God is there. Jesus is there. You know, it's last week... Uh, my oldest son said he went to a, a Coptic church, if I remember right, and he said he had all these saints on stained glass windows, and he was wondering about the reason for that. And I said the reason for that is they do that as a reminder that when we gather together for worship, we are there with all the saints. It's a picture, they're trying to paint a picture that we are in heaven worshiping God, and look around, all the saints are here. And can I give you just, just an awesome thought? Last week at 10:12, and I remember the time, Bob Began came to me and he said, we called Robert Orton and we couldn't get a hold of him. We called both his numbers. Do you have another number? And I, I said no. And I'm like, oh boy, this isn't like Bob. He always lets us know when he's not going to make it to worship. And I had a bad feeling. And sure enough, as we heard later, he passed away. And you know what we might have thought at first? Oh, he didn't join us for worship. Yes, he did. <laughs> He was around the throne, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and we were caught up to heaven, and we worshiped with Bob Orton and all the other saints who went before us. He did worship with us, and he's worshiping with us this morning. That's the congregation that we're a part of. And then we sing the psalm of ascent. And we need to realize we are going all the way to heaven before God's throne. That's the picture I want you to have each Lord's Day of where we worship and who we're worshiping with. It's a beautiful picture. So that's the beginning of the story. We come into God's presence. And then if God would open our eyes, boy, what, what we would see would stun us. Um, Isaiah got a glimpse of what was going on in heaven. In Isaiah 6, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And John tells us that the Lord here is Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus Christ seated on a throne high and lifted up. Why is that throne high and lifted up? To indicate that that throne is the throne of all all other thrones. And then we have this picture. And the train of his t- robe filled the temple. You kids know what a train of a robe is? You ever been to a, a wedding and the bride had this long dress and sometimes it was on the ground and the bridesmaids would come and they would straighten? That, that's the train. You know what it symbolizes in the ancient world? Royalty. Majesty. 
And the greater the royalty, the greater the majesty, the longer the train. And a great question to ask right here is, how long is the train of the robe of the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And this is what we have. And the train of His robe filled the temple. There's no end. It fills the entire temple. Because this is the majestic Lord. And you know what happens when you come into God's presence? You say what Isaiah said. Woe is me. Oh no. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I love live among the people of unclean And my eyes have seen the king. He thought he was going to be destroyed because he was in the presence of God. And what happens when we come into God's presence and we're aware that we're into God's presence is we have an acute awareness of our sinfulness. Oh Lord, forgive me. Which is why after the call to worship, we have the second point, which is God cleanses us in His Son. And this, this is so important. This, this is so powerful. It was interesting. The last seven weeks when we were on sabbatical, if I remember correctly, only one church had time of confession. And, and that's, that's really tragic. And, and I was reading through, the, through this book by, by James Smith, and he made a great observation. He said, these days we're trying to have seeker-sensitive churches. And, and if you come into church and you remind people that they're sinners and we need to confess our sins, that can feel very uncomfortable but he makes this great observation he says but what if unbelievers want to confess their sins what if the greatest desire of their hearts is to confess their sins and be forgiven If that's the case, it could be the greatest way that as churches we could be seeker-sensitive. R.C. Sproul says, if you ever have trouble witnessing to someone, ask them, what do you do with your guilt? Because everybody's guilty. And everybody knows it. They do. They know it. They don't know what to do with their guilt. They're trying to atone for their own sins. They're trying to redeem themselves. So they're trying to do good deeds or stick up for other people, whatever they can. But they can atone for their sins and they know it. Only Jesus Christ can atone for their sins. And I have to tell you that I love it every single week. I really do. When we confess our sins and then I remind you. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. Your guilt, your shame, it's all taken away. And now you can come into God's presence and you can feel, but Lord, I'm a sinner. And God says, I have cast your sins into the depths of the sea. And the relationship is restored because that sin is taken out of the way. It's very powerful. Now, before moving on to the third point, let me just mention that also right here we we have... Creeds and catechisms. And one of the other things that I, that I found on my sabbatical that churches don't do is they, they don't have the creeds, they don't have the, the catechisms by and large. Um, if, if you grew up in what we now call mainline denomination, Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, maybe, maybe some others, 
you, you would say the Apostles' Creed, which the church has been saying since the first century. Or you would say the Nicene Creed, with the, which the church has been saying since the fourth century. You see, we have to have some kind of way of summarizing the basics of our beliefs. And think about this next week when we say the Apostles' Creed. We are summarizing the meta narrative. We are summarizing redemptive history by reciting the creeds. In the creed alone, we're reminding ourselves this is who God is. He's a triune God, and this is how he works in history. Now, people have said this to me. Yeah, but if we say the creeds every week, it becomes rote repetition. You know what my answer to that is? So? (laughs) So? I got news for you, friends. If you want to become really good at something, you need rote repetition. Did you hear Karen Luby this morning at the piano? That was beautiful. Do you know how she was able to do that? Rote repetition. Karen, how many times have you played piano scales? Too many to count. Hundreds? Thousands? I mean, it's just huge. You want, the boys are starting basketball next this week. You want to be a good basketball player? You know what you're going to have to do? Dribble, 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 dribble. Are we done, coach? Done. We've just started. We're going to do it for another 10 minutes. Oh. And then after you dribble, dribble with your right hand, now your left hand. Oh. You want to be a good bit? That's what it takes. Right? That's what it takes. We could go on. We could talk about golf. We could talk about learning a language. And have you taken a foreign language? What did you do? Wrote repetition. I can still remember my first day of Greek class. My professor is saying, repetition is the mother of learning. This is so important. And you know what? I don't, I don't know why this hit me, but I can still remember our, our first week we went to a church, and it was good. The worship was good. The message was good. Prayer. They, they even had communion. Pleasant, pleasant surprise. But I remember leaving. I wonder what they believe. And I, and I know what they believe because I'm familiar with the church, but I don't know why that went through my mind because I thought, if someone's visiting this church, you want to be able to, what, to have a way of describing, this is what we believe at this church. And the creeds do that. They remind visitors of what we believe, and we need to be reminded of what we believe. And I think just growing up, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I had the creeds pounded into me. It's important. You need to have a way of summarizing what you believe. And and that's why we have the catechism questions as well. You have to have a way of saying this this is what we believe in, in a way of teaching, and that's how we do it practically. Well, let me, let me move on. Uh, point number three, it's in the bulletin. The Lord consecrates us by his word. The Lord consecrates us by his word. And we'll be talking about this more in coming weeks, especially with the, the Reformation. But this is very important. And studying about the importance of preaching for my, for my dissertation, there's a lot of talk these days about felt needs. You know, got to put it in square. Scare quotes, felt needs. And that's why you go to church and they'll have a message on marriage and uh, bringing up your children and finances and relationships because people feel those needs. And, and that's okay. I'm not saying that is wrong. But, but what if your felt needs don't address your deepest needs? 
like forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and a reminder that you need to desire God above all things and that you need to be living first and foremost for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom. What if that's your real need, even if you don't feel it? And if that's the case, you need to be reminded, this is what I really need. People need to be reminded, this is what I feel like I need to fill the void in my heart, but we need to be reminded that we've been created with a God-shaped void and only God can fill that void so that we can experience fulfillment, satisfaction, and peace. And God does that. He does that through His Word. And then that brings us to the fourth part of the service, communion. God communes with us at his table. And this, this really is where our service is headed, if you're wondering. What direction are, are we going towards? We are moving towards the table when we can sit down with our Lord, as it were, and commune with him, enjoy fellowship with him. Now, leaving aside just, just for the moment, the call to worship when God calls us into his presence and then the commission that we'll get to in, in a moment Think about those, those three. So we have, we have confession, we have consecration, and then we have communion. If you would look and see how the Old Testament saints came before God in worship, you would see those three steps with the offerings that they would bring. And you would see, and you don't see this everywhere, but often you would see that they would approach God and the first thing they would do is they would present a guilt offering or sometimes it's called an offering for purification. And you might see something like this. They bring their offering. Let's say it's a goat. They place their hands upon the goat, which is a symbol that their sin is being transferred to that goat and they are offering it to God to cleanse them from their sin. And then they would have the second offering. Sometimes it's called the burnt offering or the ascension offering. And the priest will take his sword or his knife and he will cut it up. He will burn it. The aroma goes up into God's nostrils and God goes, that is pleasing in my sight. And the picture of that animal being consumed, it's being consecrated, being presented to God, and it's rising up into God's presence, and God accepts that person. And then there's a final offering after the guilt offering and the burnt offering. Then we have the peace offering, the shalom offering that you bring before God. And this is the offering that God's people would often eat. And pay attention to this when you read through the Old Testament. How many times when the people of God gather together for worship, they eat and drink in God's presence. That's what it's moving towards. So they bring these three offerings. And it makes sense, doesn't it? They come before God's presence. They need to be cleansed. They need to be consecrated. And then after that, they can finally come before God and commune with Him, which is symbolized in sitting down at a table. Table fellowship is a beautiful picture of accepting one another. 
That's why in Galatians 2, when Peter wouldn't have dinner with the Gentiles, Paul rebukes him to his face and says, what are you doing? You're contradicting the gospel, which says everybody, all nations, language, tribes, and tongues come and are one in Jesus Christ because he wouldn't eat with them. That, that's what we long for more than anything else is to commune with God. And that's where the service, that's where the service is going. And that was pictured in the Old Testament. And we pick up on that, that flow for the service in the New Testament. And we call this covenantal renewal. We're renewing our covenantal relationship with God. We're coming into his presence and we're saying, forgive me. He says, I forgive you. He speaks to us and he says, and let's sit down and have a meal together so I can, so I can nourish you. That's, that's what we're enjoying every week when we come into his presence. And then after that takes place, he commissions us with his blessing. And the term for that is the benediction. We have the Great Commission and the benediction. And, uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, you know, we heard the benediction, Michelle and I, as we would visit different churches. And a couple of times we didn't hear it. And I remember a couple of times leaving the service just saying to Michelle, why didn't he give us the benediction? Why didn't he close with the benediction? Why did he say, see you, have a great day, or something similar? And I, I, I'm not trying to be critical I guess because that's too churchy, we want to stay away from that language. But the blessing is so important. Again, James Smith, I don't know if it's in this book, it might have been in one of his lectures, he said, if I was going to be late to church, I would still go just to receive the benediction, just so I could have God's blessing resting upon me. So let me... Let me give you this uh, trivia question. And, and while I say it's a trivia question, it's not a trivial question. In the Gospel according to Luke, which we're going to go through in a while, but it's going to take a while to get to Luke 24, so we'll jump ahead. How does it end? How does it end? Do you know how it ends? You say, no, I don't know how it ends. I'm going to tell you how it ends. This, this is how it ends. These are the last four verses in Luke's Gospel. Then he, referring to Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands. Picture it. This is Jesus. He's leading his disciples out. He's lifting up his hands. That's why we lift up our hands during the benediction. We see it here. We see it elsewhere. God's people are called to lift up holy hands. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands... He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Isn't that a great picture? He's blessing them. His hands are raised and He's going up into heaven as He's blessing them. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's a great picture. Before Jesus leaves, he doesn't say, Adios, amigos. Before he leaves, it's as though he's saying, I'm leaving you, but I want you to know that my blessing is resting upon you. Now thy servants may depart 
and peace. So here's the story we're trying to tell every single Sunday. The God of the universe loves us and is calling us up to His throne room in heaven so that He can meet with us. And as we confess our sins, He says, they're forgiven. All of them? All of them! They're forgiven. They're wiped away. And He consecrates us so that we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then we sit down at His table and He communes with us. How is it going? He communes with us. Isn't that something? And then He says, this is beautiful, but you still have a mission to fulfill, so I need to send you out. But I want you to know, I'm sending you out with my blessing. And I'm looking forward to next week when again you will come up to heaven into my presence and we will do this all over again. That's the story that we're trying to tell each Lord's Day as we gather together for worship. That's the story that we have to tell the world and it really is the greatest story ever told. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are the master storyteller. And we're so thankful that this is not a story of fiction. It's true. It's reality. And Father, we thank you that not only throughout the week, but especially each Lord's Day as we gather together in the sanctuary, you remind us of these great truths that we have to confess that often we forget. Father, I pray that we would stand amazed that the God of the universe would want to have a relationship with us. Father, we, we sing praises to you and we rejoice over you, but we're also told in your word that you sing over us. You rejoice over us because you also in turn love us. Oh, Father, thank you for that great love. Father, I pray that none of us in this room will have any doubts that we are loved by the God of the universe, which was clearly displayed in His giving His one and only Son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.